So I wanted to start this morning uh, by taking a couple minutes to reflect on the beauty and certainty of a sunrise and a sunset. How many this summer have experienced sunrises and sunsets? How many on a beach? How many in the mountains? Yeah, it's, it's just beautiful, right? And in the summer, we seem to get a great opportunity to do that. And my wife and I were uh, on vacation. We were on a little island uh, in the Gulf called Anna Maria Island. And every, we, every night, we were able to go to the beach and look at the sunsets. And uh, I actually took a picture of a sunset, if you could put that up. There's the beginning of it, and then it moves on from there to the next picture, and then finally the final picture, and the sun sets. And it's amazing, right? These sunsets, there's, there's something transcendent about them. You know, they have celebrations of sunsets all over the world. Uh, we were in Key West a, a few years ago, and every night at sunset, there's a square that fills up with actually a 1,000 or more people, and it's a celebration. And um, I don't think people realize what they're really celebrating. But they're really celebrating God as creator. They're celebrating God as an artist. Every sunset and sunrise is different. It's like each time there's a different tapestry and, you know, he's just on the canvas and, the, and it's just beautiful. And I think why people want to come out. And while we were there, uh, by 8.15 the beach started to get full because at 8.20, 8.25, it was going to be the sunset. And people are drawn to it. And I think there's something that they're drawn to. I think it's, there's a certainty in an ever-changing world. Um, and this certainty of the sunrises and the sunsets sort of bring a comfort, an almost reassurance that there are some things we can count on. And this is one of those things that we can count on. And it's a wonderful gift from God. Uh, the Apostle John has been attempting to do the same thing for believers in this letter. See, in the midst of disheartening struggle, false teaching, division, broken relationships, shipwrecked faith, John has been describing and he's been defining what is true and what is counterfeit faith. What is right and wrong morally, socially, and doctrinally? Who has sinned and who has not? Now his goal in these closing verses is to rebuild and encourage the shaken, disheartened, and weary faith of the believers, both in his time and for us here today. It's to encourage. It's to build back up those whose faith is discouraged or you're weary of all the things that are going on and you've seen, Lord, over the last couple of years, what we've seen in the church with crazy political rhetoric and racial issues and who wants to wear a mask and who doesn't want to wear a mask. And I mean, the list of things can go on. It's been discouraging. It's been disheartening. We've seen people leave that we love. It's been very hard. And John has been speaking into that as we are looking at these things in his word today. That's where he's going. And I love the description that Gary Burge has in the uh, NIV application commentary. So I'll just read it to you. Have it there in your outline. Verses 13 to 21 are fresh mortar for damaged foundations. 
They are solve for wounds incurred when Christians hurt one another. And they offer new vision when confusion has made the spiritual world less certain. So let's read these last verses. We're going to be starting in verse 13 and reading to verse 21 out of 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray about that, all wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. What a way to end this letter. Very interesting, right? But let's look at now where John is. He's basically taking all that he's done in the first four chapters and the first part of chapter 5, and he's summing it all up with these words, so that you may know. You're going to see this in the text. So that you may know, so that you may know, so that you may know, that you may know for certain that this is true. He's really coming at it. And the first thing he says is, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know that you have eternal life. People are unsettled in their faith. The Antichrist have been in the camp and they've left. There's been false prophets, false teaching. There's been division. There's been anger. But he's assuring them first that they have eternal life if they believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Don't listen to these false teachers. Don't listen to these Antichrists who basically have no assurance of anything. But you have assurance of eternal life if you believe in Jesus as the Son of God. There is this unending fellowship with God, and it is the possession of all who believe. Unending fellowship with God. And he started with this in the very first chapter in verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to read them again so you can see where he's gone with everything. This has been sort of his big thing he wants people to know this. This is his testimony because he was with Jesus. So let me read verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He walked with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus. I, I, I love the chosen. you got to watch the chosen and again and again because you're seeing this. He's proclaiming it. He's bearing testimony. I was with the word of life. I saw God in the flesh. I'm telling you. And there's more than just me. 
And that life appeared. That's the incarnation. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Now listen. So that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. Fellowship with the Father and the Son is eternal life. We experience it now in our fellowship through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are already tasting eternal life. And he moves on, certainly, and he says, this new life is expressed. It's defined by obeying God's commandments. He's been telling us that over the last number of weeks. And loving your brothers, sisters, and neighbors. As we learned last week, there's an inner witness. There's that regeneration that the Spirit brings plus the outward actions which lead to assurance. When you have that inner witness and you see yourself changing and you see yourself becoming more like Jesus, I mean, that's basically what he's doing. When you actually are beginning to live out the character of heaven on earth, God is at work in you. It's not what I would normally do. This is the beginning of eternal life. When we love people, when we forgive people, when we reach out in mercy, we are doing what? We are bringing the character of heaven on earth. And this isn't an arrogant presumption, but rather it's the humble assurance of children who know their father. Brothers and sisters, right now in this room, we are getting a taste of eternal life. Right now, the Holy Spirit is with us, and in this fellowship, as we have worshiped, as we have prayed, and now as God speaks to us through His Word, we are being assured that this relationship is real. And eternity is touching us, and we're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And it's out of that context now that he comes and he begins to talk about these other certainties that he, again, has mentioned before. But the first one is, be certain and know that God hears and answers our prayers. That God hears and answers our prayers. Now, at the heart of true prayer is a relationship. When he taught us how to pray, he said, our Father in heaven. I can't get any more relational than that. Our Father, yes, Son, yes, Daughter, I hear you, I'm with you, I love you, I care for you, and I'm listening to you. This is all about relationship. And in prayer, we bring our heart's desire to the Father in Jesus' name. Our Father has promised not only to hear, but answer all our prayers as we pray according to His will. Uh-oh. Let's get all theological now. Let's get forensic. Let's spend the next 15 hours trying to describe this because it is daunting. Yes, it is. Because we will never, ever, ever always have our prayer according to God's will. It's a building of what God does in us. But he gives us help. When I take the word of God out and I pray the scripture, I'm praying God's will. Because the scripture is God's word. In Colossians 
he basically speaks to us. Here's this prayer of Paul. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So not only do we have the Word of God, we have the Spirit of God, and as we're in relationship, what He's doing and what the Spirit's job is is to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. We are to be transformed into the image of His Son. And as we're being transformed, we begin to pray more out of God's will because we're living more in relationship with him. And so we know the heart of God and we're moving in that direction. But here's the thing, and I think it's something that we, we, we just have to remember, that every prayer has either spoken or unspoken what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. When I'm praying, that's what, if I pray that, there's times when I have prayed that, there's times when I haven't, but it's unspoken, and the Spirit is praying that for us because God will always answer our prayers according to His will, not our will. And His will is a perfect will. It is a good will. He knows what His children need. Do you believe that? Matthew 7, 11, here's what Jesus said. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I'm a father. I'm sure a number of you are fathers in here, mothers in here. We have Children, my children are all older now. But my children were growing up, and they would have a desire, and they would ask me for it. And there were times I would answer them, and there were times I didn't give them what they wanted because it wasn't good for them. My one son loved orange food. It was the worst thing in the world for him. I wouldn't give it to him because I was trying to protect him and help him. So he went out and did it anyway, but that's... You know, that's, that's life. That's who we are. We're just like that with the father also. Um, maybe our child wants to make an investment, and we talk with them about it, and we say that's maybe not the best way to go. And we can just think about all the things that we do with our children, and there's times when we would give them stuff, times when we would not, times when we would make them wait because they needed to grow in their own character. There's things that had to happen in their life. Before we saw that, there was rites of passages. And that's the way God is with us in prayer. That's the way he is with us. And yes, there are some hard answers. But am I going to trust him as the father who loves me? Am I going to trust the purpose and will is good? This is, this is where he goes with this, according to his will. And we're learning that. And I love what R.A. Torrey says about prayer. I don't have this quote in your outline, but I'm going to read it to you. Prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. But we must use the key. Prayer can do anything that God can do. And since God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. Do you ever think about prayer that way? That's why in Ephesians it says, when we pray, he will do more than we ask or imagine. That there's nothing impossible for God. 
And when I pray knowing that and believing that, God is able to do everything that God can do. And I go into prayer with that bold expectancy, knowing that he will do things according to his will, and that will be perfect and good and pleasing because God is a loving God and he is our Father. And then since this is true of prayer, we should be loving our brothers, our sisters, by praying them out of trouble. I mean, that's where he goes. We should be praying our brothers and sisters out of trouble if we see them committing sin. And and the general thrust of this teaching is clear. If we see a brother and sister commit a sin, not leading to death, we should pray that God will give them life to restore. So, first of all, sin not leading to death. Basically what he's saying is anybody who has the Holy Spirit in them, anybody who's alive in Christ, because of who we are now in Jesus, we don't have sins in us that lead to death because the Holy Spirit is at work in us. But what we need to do is we need to be restored. We need to repent. We need our our sin to be uh, given like right in our face sometimes. The Holy Spirit has to show us these things. And basically as we pray for one another, What happens is it's a restoration of vitality as we repent of our sins. There's this coming back to uh, knowing God and all of his goodness. And this is what we are to pray for one another because our faith can become shipwrecked. And it's a deeper work of the Holy Spirit in restoring that. And who not but David was a perfect illustration of this. Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, O God. He's speaking after he sinned with Bathsheba, after he actually sent her husband onto the front line so he would die. And in the middle of that psalm, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me unto me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Restore the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit. And here he was before Christ came and died and the spirit was unleashed. What would he ask for? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Brothers and sisters, we have a seal in our hearts of the Holy Spirit. We have a guarantee because of the blood of Christ. That Holy Spirit is in us. So we do not sin unto death. Do you get that? Amen? The Spirit is at work in us, and the Spirit will lead us to repentance and maybe even discipline for our own good. But that is a blessing that we can be certain of. So then the next question is, well, what is this sin that leads to death? What is it? And when we think about the context in which John is speaking, remember he's called a number of times the people who've been teaching antichrist. So this death that leads, the sin that leads to death, is, is this idea of, it's the sin that denies that Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh, that he's the son, that he's the Messiah, that salvation is found in him alone, And by denying that Jesus came in the flesh, they're denying the incarnation. And then when they say, well, the Spirit left Jesus on the cross, so it wasn't really God, they're denying what the mediator in the order of Melchizedek could only do, die once for all for sin of mankind. 
that was poured out on him. And so basically what they were doing is what is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And by denying this truth, they're sinning against the witness of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they don't have life, but unending separation from God. Now, where did, where did John get this from? He got it from Jesus. Jesus speaks about the unforgivable sin. Listen to what he says in Mark 3.29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. Basically, he's saying they have rejected the witness of the Spirit. They've rejected the good news of the gospel. They've rejected Christ for who he was. Now, here's the thing. John doesn't actually say that we should not pray for such people, but he is saying that we can have no confidence, no assurance that God will hear our prayer for such people because they don't have the Spirit in them. But I will tell you, the reason I'm here is because people prayed for me when I was rejecting the Holy Spirit. And so I think we are to pray for those who don't know the Lord because the Holy Spirit is able to do uh, and come to hearts. But we can't be assured. We can't be assured that they will come to the Lord. And that's hard, isn't it? How many of us pray for loved ones? How many of us pray for neighbors? We can't be sure because they don't have the Spirit. But we can believe as we pray that God will send the Spirit through irresistible grace to open eyes, the ears of their hearts, and that heart of stone will be turned into hearts of flesh like ours has been. Amen? So John moves from this now, and he wants to make it perfectly clear. So here's what he says in verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. This is so powerful. You see, he's saying sin is no longer a prevailing pattern in a believer's life. John is saying that through new birth, through regeneration, and our union with Christ as believers, sin's guilt's been removed, and the power of sin is irreversibly broken. And we as believers are now being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. It says in John, when he appears, we will be like him. And, and the reason this is short, and I think this is what's so beautiful about what he says here, it's because Jesus himself protects us from the evil one. Jesus protects us. He is the assurance that we will not fall away and be lost. Philippians says, he who began this work in us is going to complete it. The evil one is going to trouble us until the day we die. Just as he never let up seeking to trouble Jesus. And Satan may grab us. And he may grab at us and tempt us through doubt, friends who fall away, idols, sexual temptations, worldly allurements. But because of the power of Christ, he cannot get us. He will not grasp hold of us because the one born of God 
protects us. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Can Jesus have said it any more plainly? Any more plainly? Is this an assurance? Oh, I am so thankful. Left to myself, I'm a mess. Left to myself, I will fall to temptation. But because of Christ and his love and his protection, how does he pray in John 17? In verse 12, he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, for scripture was fulfilled. None of them have been lost. This is Jesus speaking to us. This is certain. This is assurance of eternal life, of salvation, and the presence of Christ and the fellowship with the Father and the Son as we live. So wonderful. And know this, that you have moved from darkness to light. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. In stark contrast to the safety of the believer in Christ, the whole world lies at rest in the power of the evil one. We are safe, but the world is a slave. That's hard. That's hard, isn't it? Do you believe, do you have a perspective that we live in a cursed world? Tragically, people without Jesus are caught up in the lies and the futility of this world system, controlled and captivated by the power and authority of Satan himself. I think sometimes we fall into a humanistic way of thinking that's all part of our world. And we think that people are, somewhere along the line, people are really good somewhere. The Bible says we're totally depraved, and it says the world, the flesh, and the devil is in control. It tells us that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, snatches the word of God from human hearts, deceives by miraculous signs and wonders, and he entices through temptations of the flesh and pride, and that Satan actually has the entire world under his control. This is very instructive. It took me a while to get this when I became a Christian. It's a global conflict with an enemy that influences and in many instances controls cultures, societies, finances, and even governments. Do you believe that? Why is our government corrupt? Who's behind it? Who's behind sin? Even the things that we think are good, we need to look at them through the eyes of the Word and the Holy Spirit. We need to be led by truth. 
you know, I'm going to use the word, but Satan has an evil empire. I know some of you Star Wars people will be like, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yes, the evil empire. And yes, he is Darth Vader. I'm going to, that's as far as I'm gone. I'm not going to go any further. But, but there's a reality. Even in some of the things that we see, this truth comes through so powerfully. There is darkness, and this world is being controlled by darkness. I don't know how we can't think of it. Why are these mass shootings going on? Everybody wants to try to psychologize. If, forget psychologizing. It's Satan's been involved in that. The evil one has been moving someone to a place where they won't give any concern about any life at all because Satan was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And who does he oppose with vehemence? The people of God. He doesn't want to see the good news of the gospel go forward. He doesn't want to see ministries of mercy and care for the weak and the helpless. He hates who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. Revelation 12 says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. The woman is the church of Christ. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus, he rages against. In 1 Peter 5, he says he is like a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. What does he want to devour? He wants to devour our faith. So I'm going to ask you, do you have this worldview? Because this is a biblical worldview. And, and when I have this worldview... I begin to see things differently. I begin to see the way people act, some of the decisions that are being made, and I begin praying about that because I'm praying to the one who can actually move and change even people's hearts. And so that's how we're crying. We have this power within us now. And our actions, our ability to step into this world and to reflect the character of heaven on earth is so desperately needed. And we have an assurance that as we do that, we'll be kept from the evil one, that we actually walk around in eternal life, that we have power. We have so much power. We have the power of God as we pray, omnipotent power. Nothing greater, no weapon, nothing in this world is greater than this power that we have. It's a certainty that we may know it. How amazing is that? Do we see the world that way and do we see who we are in Christ that way? How powerful is this? And that's why I love Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, because it sort of brings it all together. So let me read it to you. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you follow the ways of this world, and listen, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have 
been saved. Brothers and sisters, we have been moved from darkness to light. We have been saved by grace. We have been regenerated. We're the children of God. We share eternal life with them. We have the power of prayer. We have the one who gives us all things in Christ. And he moves from that and says, so because of this, know that we live in truth. Listen to verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. It is the true God and eternal life. You see what John does here? He links the historical with the experiential. He has given firsthand testimony that Jesus was the Son of God. He actually lived in this world. He was an historical figure. He had flesh who lived, loved, and died. But saving faith is more than just believing historical facts. It's combined with the divine illumination, the regeneration, and the nature of our minds, which have been darkened by sin and Satan, are opened up. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of the Son to understand our need of a Savior who in reality, it's Jesus. He's the promised Messiah. He's the mediator. He's the high priest. He's the lamb who was slain. He purchased our salvation by his death on the cross. He is the true bread of life. He is the light of the world. And not only do we believe in him as real and true, but we are in him. And that's the very heart of the Christian life. Here's the very heart of the Christian life. Union with God in Christ and communion with God in Christ. Do you get that? Union and communion. We are in God. Right now, we are in God. We have the ability to touch eternity. When we pray, we actually cross over into the spirit world with God. We have the ability to do that through the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. We have union and we have communion through Christ. How powerful is that? And because of this, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. John is warning, do not go off into something else. Don't give your attention, your interest, your time, your money, your energy. It is what you live for, what you get excited about, what enthuses you. That is your God. Think about that. Take a moment to think about your life. What are the passions? What are the things that get you most excited? What do you spend most of your time on? Begin to look at them. And are they taking the place of God in your life? There's good things, but those good things can't become God. We have to begin looking at that because they will eventually move us away and control our lives. And that's what John is getting at here. You have Jesus. You have everything you need in Jesus. 
You have certainty in all these wonderful things that God has given you through Jesus. He is your all and all. Jesus is. Jesus is. I'll ask the worship team to come up, and I'm going to put up this, what I have at the end. I want us to sort of end with this thought in our mind. So let me read it to you. So guard yourself from idols of power, control, comfort, approval, position, applause, and pleasure. Your heart, our hearts, will never be satisfied and at rest with any of these little false gods. And I'm sure you've already experienced this. Only Christ truly and eternally satisfies. Jesus said it perfectly. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I mean, what a picture, right? We can always go back to Jesus. He is a well of eternal life. We can always go back and ask. We can always cry out. We can always know that he is with us. And when our souls are parched, he will give us that which we need to drink. When we are burdened with things, he will lift those burdens from us. We have a well of living water that is Jesus Christ, and it will always satisfy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is our Jesus. We know for certain these things. And I was telling Jeremy that as I was, as I was thinking about this, I got, all of a sudden, get, how many have ever sung the song, I Got a River of Life Flowing Out of Me? And I just got this. And it was this morning. It was about 5 o'clock, and I'm praying. And it's like, I got a river of life flowing. I'm like, Lord, I think I got to sing this today. I think we got to sing this today because this is our God and this is what he's given us. And let's celebrate this today because this is certain because of who Jesus is. So we got to stand and let's sing it. You may know the words or not, but I'll, I'm not the best singer, but I'll give it a shot. All right, here we go. I got a river of Let it fill you. Let it fill you. And I just want to 
encourage you. Hey, there's going to be times when we're feeling the circumstances of life are just draining us and we're weary. There's going to be things that happen and we're going to say, Lord, that is not the answer to the prayer I wanted. There's going to be times of waiting where we're going to doubt. There's going to be temptations to come that we're falling prey to. But John has given us a wonderful list of certainties that we can trust in. And next time that begins to happen, turn to 1 John 5, 8, 13 through 21, and just pray through it. And ask the Holy Spirit to make it real in your life again. Because that's what he does. Because that's according to the will of God. I really want to encourage you to do that. Let's let God work in us together. And when you see a brother and sister struggling, pray that for them. Pray that for them. And if you see them sinning, don't gossip, pray. Don't judge. Humble yourself. Let God be at work in us as a community. That when people walk in here and when people see us and they see our families, they see the character of heaven being lived out on earth and what they're attracted to in all of that is the God who makes these things certain for us through Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I just want to thank you. I just thank you so much that you give us your word. You give us the testimony of John, and then he's able to encourage us, first by revealing things to us, and then saying, do you not know these things are certain? Holy Spirit, seal them to our hearts. Give us the ability to pray and to trust your will and to cry out, oh Lord, we pray that we would know that we have eternal life and right now we have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us know that the evil one has no power over us, but the one who is in us is more powerful than he that is in the world and nothing can snatch us from your hands because we are yours and we love you, Lord God. Yes, Lord, thank you for that. And thank you that we know truth, truth, Lord, in a world of broken promises, in a world of misinformation, in a world of false narratives. We know truth, and the truth will set us free. Hallelujah. We give you praise, and we give you glory, and we look forward to the day when we will be with you in heaven. Let's end by singing soon and very soon.